Steel Toes and Scoreboards Podcast. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Hey, Kurt, you want a hot take? Yeah. Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. He was a great two-strike hitter. Bill Lambeer would have made Shaq piss himself. You really think so? It's Shaq, dude. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Fun fact, Kurt. I love deep stats. Good research, bro. (laughs) Word association. Greatest of all time. Tell me how you really feel about pro sports. These contracts are out of control. Some people might not like that. Well, I'm going to piss some people off. (laughs) Well, I mean, you sure will. (laughs) You're the baseball guru, though, man. Shout out to my coach, Joe Rodmaker. Well, it is a digital world these days. Yeah, I'm an analog man. Tiger Woods. Mount Rushmore, bro. Coach Bobby Knight. IU misses him, no doubt. Times have changed. But for the better of the worst. Well, that's that's arguable. I'll tell you right now, though. I'm, uh, it's modern age. I'm not drug testing for pot anymore in any sport. It's a damn plant. <laughs> they fire and suspend these guys for... Weed? Ridiculous. I'm a fountain sure of bet. useless pro wrestling. Sure bet. Sure bet. Sound like Adam Sweet. Sure bet. <laughs> he was a role model for millions. Rest in peace, Mamba. Team Ali. Team Tyson. You know what? Fuck it. You're baseball's new commissioner. Oh, I don't want that job. <laughs> oh, horse shit. Come on, bro. Magic versus Bird. What a rivalry. Okay. Okay. Boost ratings. Asses in the seat. You know what? Hot take. Tap the mic. He's the best I've ever seen. Nobody compares to him. Look at his legacy. All right, guys. Another episode of Steel Toads and Scoreboards coming to you now. Alright guys, welcome to another episode of Steel Toes and Scoreboards. Jared Atkins. Um, Kirk Kelly should be joining us momentarily. Um, unless he's doing the old man thing where he's done fell asleep in his uh, beanbag chair, naked eating Cheetos. Shout out Ron White. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we're do a weeknight chronicles episode here uh so i'm gonna go ahead and start rolling tape and uh if kurt shows up he shows up if not it's uh no big deal so it is a big deal puss you know you're a very important part of the show without you there is no steel toes and scoreboards but anyways uh got a lot of news to to go through um so let's get into it and i want to start by talking about aaron Rodgers and the green bay packers and before you jump out there and think that we're going to talk about uh, bad play or whatever. One of the things we do a lot of here on the show when we do these weeknight chronicle episodes that are news-based or when we do current events is we don't typically talk about a lot of injuries, a lot of trades, or a lot of bad play. We're not sitting here critiquing playing Monday morning quarterback with any of the four sports. Um. So that's not what this is about. What this is about is uh, Aaron has decided to kind of take his own stand against the NFL, uh, joining a list of teams as well as other players that's made an opinion uh, about the game being played on turf. Uh, Aaron has come out said that he thinks the game should be played on all natural grass, 
but he doesn't have high hopes that it will happen. Uh, Roger said today, quote, I honestly don't have a lot of confidence when it comes to the league making the decision without some sort of big vote and gripes from certain owners who don't want to spend the money. Now, Aaron Rodgers has uh, always been vocal about a lot of things. That's one thing I like. I'm not a Packers fan, but I'm a, I'm a big pro Aaron Rodgers guy. Aaron has never been afraid to speak his mind, and uh, he's earned that right. He's a Super Bowl champion. Uh, guarantee you he's a surefire Hall of Famer. In my mind, he is. Um, he's He's been outspoken on player safety issues over the years. Uh, most notably last year, he was extremely against the NFL expanding to a 17-game season, which I, for one, am completely against. That was, that was a money grab. That's all that was. There's no earthly fucking reason that we should ever have went to a 17-game season. It's dumb. Now the record numbers don't even... I hate how that's not an even number. Don't match up. You know, you, you can't finish 500 anymore. You know... It's dumb. Uh, but anyways, Roger said, uh, to me, this is player safety. He said, you guys can expand to 17 games, which is clearly about monetary gains. So this would be putting your money where your mouth is if player safety is important. Uh, Rogers is uh, he's joining basically a, a huge effort by the NFL Players Association to bring attention to the disparity that's going on between injuries that happen on grass and artificial turf, uh, most notably what they call the slit film turf. Now, the Players Association has called for an immediate replacement and ban of the field turf, citing a higher rate of injuries on those surfaces, which is in current use by seven teams, the Giants, the Jets, Lions, Vikings, Saints, Colts, and the Bengals. Now, earlier last week, the NFL come out and said that the rate of non-contact injuries to the knee, ankle, and foot is roughly the same on natural grass as well as the artificial field turf, according to their data reviewed by ESPN. Now, um, the Packers, they play Thursday night uh, against Tennessee. They play on a uh, a sort of a sort of field turf called uh, SIS grass, which is basically synthetic fibers stitched together with natural Kentucky bluegrass. Aaron continued his quote today saying, I do think it's time to go all grass throughout the league. I think you would see less of these non-contact injuries that we view on some of the surfaces. And I think it would be a good step in every direction towards player safety to make the requirement for every field to be grass. I mean, I'm personally of the opinion that uh, I like football being played on grass. To me, when, you, when you're a kid starting out playing it, you're playing on grass. It's just a certain feeling. I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm old school, but I have always been a uh, non-astroturf, field turf, all kind of turf guy. Like, I, like it's, it's grass football. That's how it's meant to be played. But that's just, you know, that's just me. Uh, I don't know kind of I've never really took an online poll here I've never really gauged comments across the internet on what everybody's thinking but for me personally football needs to be played on natural grass that's the way the game was started that's the way the game needs to be played uh but it but at any rate I do think that uh you know when we get into the off season uh in February 
after the Super Bowl when things start. I, I think there's going to be – I think enough of noise has been made about this this year by the NFL Players Association that I think we could start to see uh, some serious discussions about a a ban on some certain types of turf. I, I don't know. What are you going to do with dome stadiums? You know, you're really going to have to grow like – I don't know. It, it's an interesting story. I know a lot of people will think of this and be like, this is a non-story. Uh, but, you know, it'd be something worth keeping an eye on. Now, I, I do got a bit of uh, sad news. There's actually uh, two pieces of sad news that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but I'm going to start with this, and that's about uh, Anthony Rumble Johnson. Uh, a light heavyweight fighter. Uh, he, he passed away over the weekend. He was 38 years old. He uh, was an MMA light heavyweight guy, uh, 23 and 6 in his career. Uh, fought for the UFC. He was uh, recently fought for Bellator last year. And now he's, he, reportedly, he's passing away from complications due to organ failure from Nod Hodgkin's lymphoma which is just absolutely heartbreaking to think about. Uh, Bellator put out a statement uh, yesterday saying that their Bellator family is devastated by his untimely passing, and we send all of our condolences to his family and friends during the difficult time. Uh, During his career, he had 17 knockouts and six decisions. His last fight was in May of last year, so a year and a half ago. Uh, in September of last year, he posted on Instagram that he needed as many prayers as he can get, and he was in a battle. Uh, if you remember, for those of you that follow him on social media, he said it was not COVID-related. Well, you fast forward to May 17th of this year, and he posted on Instagram that he had gotten good news from his doctor saying they were big improvements. But going back just a month ago, uh, Rumble Johnson's manager spoke to ESPN saying that he was going through some health problems right now, and he's not doing well. Uh, Daniel Cormier, uh, you know, uh, he was a guy who had beat um, Rumble Johnson. Uh, He would say, what a person he was. Sometimes life doesn't seem fair from random texts to check-ins during losses. Uh, it's, it's shaking a lot of people up. And Johnson, he fought in the UFC from 2007 to 2017. Most notably, he lost to Cormier twice in light heavyweight title bouts. He competed in three weight classes for the UFC and established a reputation as uh, a badass. Uh, he had heavy hands. Uh, he very aggressive strikes. Uh, reckless abandon in mixed martial arts. Now, he retired from the UFC in 2017 after his second loss to Cormier, but he returned to competition with Bellator for one fight, uh, like I said earlier in last year, before his health problems uh, just took a turn for the worse. Uh, ultimately, it's a, it's a pretty sad day across mixed martial arts. Uh, Johnson was a beast. I love watching him compete. Uh, been a really good guy, so... Uh, our thoughts are and prayers are definitely with the family and friends of uh, Rumble. And uh, now he's throwing down in the octagon in the sky. So, salute. 
I uh, just wanted to point this out here. This is kind of a callback to uh, last weekend when Kurt and I did the full-length current events uh, flight line. Uh, the winning horse that retired, and he's going to be studded out now. Uh, Keeneland reports that a 2.5% fractional interest in Breeders' Cup Classic Champion flight line sold for $4.6 million during a special auction before the start of its November breeding stock sale. Now, uh, Freddie Seitz from Brookdale Farms signed a ticket for an undisclosed client the track announced in its release on Monday. The sale came just a day after ownership of the four-year-old son of Tappet, where Kurt just lost his shit when we said Tappet. Because we're talking about studding and breeding, and the, the flight line's father's name was Tappet. So, uh, anyways, so, you know, flight line re- retired an unbeaten Colt following his eight-and-a-quarter victory in the uh, classic Cleanland uh, about a week or two ago. Uh, he... You know, Fightline's probably looking at um, Horse of the Year honors. Uh, so, and he's drawn a lot of comparisons to the legendary Triple Crown Champion Secretariat. Uh, but Fightline's now going to begin uh, breeding next year at Lanes Inn Farms in Versailles, Kentucky. Uh, the stud fee has still yet to be determined, but for uh, a horse like this, a thoroughbred, a championship winner that's just sh- shocked everybody and he's undefeated. Uh, who you're gonna you're gonna pay a very 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 pretty penny for that? So I just I get excited. I love when we talk about uh, horse racing and stuff. So a uh, little bit of college basketball news here. We haven't we don't man we have not ever done a, a college basketball episode. We need to talk about that at some point but there is some college basketball no- news uh notably the number one ranked senior in the country dj wagner announced his commitment to kentucky yesterday choosing uh, the kentucky wildcats over the louisville cardinals now his commitment is going to give calipari and kentucky the number one recruiting recruiting class in the country and if kentucky finishes the cycle at the top uh, it will be the seventh time since Calipari took over in Kentucky over a decade ago that Kentucky has the number one ranked recruit, recruiting class in the country. He will also be the fourth number one recruit to commit to the Wildcats under Calipari. Shout out Anthony Davis, Nerlens Noel, and I can't think of the other guy's name. Double uh, S, uh, Shaden, uh, Shandon. Uh, you guys know. You guys know who I'm talking about. What the fuck was that kid's name? Shandon, Shaden, Shannon. Anyways, I'm drawing blank. Um, now Wagner spoke to ESPN and he said, this was an extremely difficult decision that I went back and forth with for a long time. That's why it took so long. I'm real comfortable with my decision. Coach Calipari was always straightforward and honest with me. He said we would, he would be with me until the wheels fall off the car And that meant so much to me. When I watched him coach, I could feel the intensity, how he disciplines his team, and how he breaks it down. The atmosphere at Kentucky is unbelievable. I've been there several times, and that's what I'm most comfortable with. Now, this kid was strongly recruited by both Kentucky schools, uh, Louisville and, you know, the University of Kentucky. Um, He's got strong family ties to both programs. 
Calipari coached Wagner's father, DeWan, at Memphis, and first-year Louisville coach Kenny Payne played with Wagner's grandfather, Milt, on Louisville's 1986 national championship team. So this young kid has got ties to the Bluegrass State, um, and he pretty much let it be known he was going to play for one of these two programs. Now, back in the spring, Payne hired Milt Wagner as the program's director of player development and alumni relationship, a similar move to when Calipari hired Milt at Memphis in the year 2000. Now, Wagner's stepbrother, Kareem Walkins, is a walk-on to Kentucky. Uh, he said, my, brother's a, my brother Kareem is on the team. That made a huge difference. I look up to him. We are very close. My grandfather was always my grandfather throughout the process. He never tried to recruit me. He always said, do what's best for me. He's been a mentor in my life, and he's helped me develop into the player and the person that I am. He will always be first, nothing but love for him. Now, this kid's a six foot three guard out of uh, New Jersey. He's been considered the best prospect in the 2023 class since his early high school days. He's averaging 18.8 points and 4.9 assists. Uh, including nine 20-point efforts in 18 games. Uh, as a high school junior last season, he averaged 19.8 points and led Camden, his high school, to a New Jersey State championship. Now, he's also helped lead USA Basketball to a gold medal at the 2022 FIBA World Championships, starting in all seven games, averaging nine points, three rebounds, and two assists. Uh, from what I've seen of this kid... Uh, checking out highlights and what I know about this kid is he's a grinder. Uh, he's a blue chipper. Uh, a lot of draft busts in NBA history. Uh, I think there's been more players bust out in the NBA, I think, than they do in baseball and Major League Baseball. Maybe that's me. Maybe that's a wrong assessment. But just from what I've paid attention to, I, I, I think a lot of guys flame out more in the NBA than they do. This kid might be different. He looks like he's something special. I first heard about this kid uh, back in the summer. So, you know, um, checked on, you know, read a couple articles, seen a couple clips. I mean, I always joke about Saban, you know, running dominance on college football. Calipari is that guy for uh, college basketball. I mean, no, he. I mean, he doesn't have a legendary name as as thick as what like Coach K does, but kids go to play for Saban at Alabama because Alabama puts players in the NFL. Kids go play for Calipari because Calipari puts kids in the NBA. Um, nobody wants to stay four years anymore. They want to go for a year, be the show, be the talk of the town, get drafted, go make their millions, and go play. Uh, I love. Could you imagine this kid here? what he would do if he'd stay and play for four seasons. Uh, who knows? But I do think uh, Kentucky's going to be competitive this year. Uh, talking about that, uh, the Kentucky class right now, uh, according to ESPN's report, says that they have four of the top eight prospects in the 2023 class. So uh, this is only the third time in the last 10 years where one school has landed four top 10 prospects in the same class. Of course, Kentucky, Kentucky did it in 2013, which had five of the top nine. Uh, and we know how legendary that team was. And then, of course, Duke's team in 2017. Um, Wagner said, I'm coming here to win. 
winning comes first with me and I want to help Kentucky win as much as possible. And I mean, I think, I think they're going to do it. I think they are completely, completely capable of this. I love college basketball. This is, this is, I always talk about spring being the best time of year because, you know, the NFL just wrapped and then you start to get into free agency and draft talks. Uh, baseball starting up. The NBA and the NHL are marching toward the postseason. But, man, getting into this time of the year, too, is something special. When you get into about November, college basketball is fixing to cure all, uh, jump off here. You know, the NBA and the NHL has been in swing for a month. The NFL's in the midpoint of the season. World Series, postseason baseball, you know, or, or just in, like this is a good damn time of year, too. Um, and I do think we need to talk more college basketball. Me and Puss talked about that. So, uh, one thing I do here on the show, or one thing I did this year, um, of course, you know, we started this podcast in May of last year. And who would have ever thought that here we are a year and a half later and we're still doing it? So, uh, and that's thanks in part to the support we have from you guys. And um, we appreciate that. But one thing I did in December of last year, so 11 months ago, is I kind of just took a look at a 2022 calendar. And uh, I kind of uh, just kind of took a look at like what kind of things I wanted to talk about. One thing I didn't anticipate doing was these mini episodes that came to me while we were doing the point guard episode, which was trash. And that I needed to get more mileage out of the podcast. So one thing I'm going to do next month is I'm going to start looking at 2023 as a whole and start looking at what kind of episodes we can put together. And I'm definitely going to get some more college basketball in there. So, but yeah, this DJ Wagner kid uh, coming out of New Jersey, uh, be interesting to see what happens. So, uh, let's move forward here and uh, let's do a callback. Kurt loves callbacks. And uh, I love callbacks. And uh, one of the biggest stories that we've referenced in multiple uh, Weeknight Chronicle episodes this year has been the situation with Cain Velasquez. Uh, and I love Cain Velasquez. And I don't care that he, you know, there's innocent people in the car when he shot. But we all know the reason. Well, some more information came out. Last week, Cain uh, Velasquez was granted a million-dollar bail after being locked away in Santa Clara County for eight months. This is a story that we're all familiar with. And for those of you that don't, let me cliff note version. Uh, back in the spring, Cain Velasquez was arrested and charged with attempted murder and 10 other gun related charges in Santa Clara County. Um, he was accused of chasing down a man named Harry Galarte in his vehicle and shooting at him. Galarte is being charged with sexually assaulting a young relative of Velasquez. Yeah, so for those of you that are just now hearing this for the first time, you're like, what the fuck? Get in your Google machine and go find it. It's a, it is a f wow story. So now Vlasquez said in a civil lawsuit filed in June that Galarte had molested Velazquez's four-year-old son. Before, it was just a family member. Then it came out over the summer that it was his son. So then it goes from uh, he's defending his family, but he really fucked up to, oh, my God, he, he was defending his child. Does that change anything? Uh, who knows? Uh, now, per the terms of his release, he was granted bail. He's going to have to wear a GPS tracker 
and he is not allowed to be within 300 yards of the alleged victims in this case per Velasquez's attorney. Now, the victims in this case involve Velasquez, or Velasquez, involve Galarte, but also Galarte's, I think it was his step-siblings, or his, or not his step-sibling, fuck, his uh, stepfather and mother, or maybe they were both his biological parents. I thought one of them was a step-parent. I, I don't remember. Either way, they were in the car when this incident happened. So Velasquez is not allowed to be within 300 feet of any of them. Um, so Velasquez's attorney, Mark Garagos, said, it's been a long, slow process, and I am very grateful. Nothing is as touching as watching Kane with his wife, Michelle, there and have it sink in that he's coming home for a while. Now, he's 40 years old. He's been in jail since February 28th. Of course, he pleaded not guilty. And then he was granted bail this past week after being denied bail four times. They denied him bail four times. So, okay, here it is. He allegedly shot Galarte's stepfather, Paul Bender, when he fired into the vehicle Galarte was riding in. Bender sustained no serious injury. The story goes that Velazquez was following Galarte's truck in his own vehicle on an 11-mile high-speed chase through San Jose, California, ran the truck, and fired a 40-gun, a 40-gun, I cannot talk tonight, I apologize. He fired a 40 caliber handgun multiple times into the truck, which carried Galarte Bender and Galarte's mother. Bender was hit with a bullet, though he sustained no life-state injuries. Now, Velazquez's son told police on February 24th that Galarte took him into the bathroom of a daycare center and touched his genitals per a court document. The child said Galarte told him not to tell anyone what happened, and this situation could have occurred possibly 100 times. The child then told police that they had witnessed Galarte go into the bathroom with other kids several times as well. Now, Mark Garrigo said he was having said having a hearing was key to the judge making this decision. He said he's not sure when the trial will be held, but Velasquez will have a chance to go home beginning Tuesday, which Velasquez is also home now. He should be. Instead of listening to all this hyperbole and nonsense banded about, we had a hearing with cross-examination and witnesses under oath. So here's the deal. Uh, if you guys go back to some of our first couple Weeknight Chronicle episodes, one of the topic in the first few episodes for the first month or two was we would get something in there about Cain Velasquez at any chance we could. Um, yeah, you probably shouldn't be firing a weapon into a vehicle. Do do I know if Cain Velasquez knew Galarte's parents were in there in the car? Do I, I don't know that. If he did, did it matter? I don't know. But he was doing what any father would do when you find out your four-year-old son's been sexually assaulted, touched inappropriately. I mean, I, you know, Kurt and I have uh, made no bones about it that we are not very PC people. But it is 2022. You have to be mindful and respectful of people and the things you say. But if I'm going to lose your support on this podcast over this, then fuck you. I don't need you. I completely support Velasquez trying to get at this dude. Uh, I don't. I'm pretty hard on myself as a person. I don't think I'm that good of a person. I don't think I'm that honest of a person. I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to meet Jesus when I die. But I'm I'm trying really hard to live my life the way I know I should. But 
if you touch my children in any way, shape, or form in that manner, I'm not going to be afraid to die. I promise you that. If you touch my children in any way like that, take their innocence from them and make them lose the smile that every beautiful child has. I mean, saying that to basically say that it's unfortunate that two innocent people were in the vehicle with Galarte and one was struck with a bullet while the other one, Galarte's mother, had the shit scared out of her. Uh, I'm sorry your son did a bad thing. And the thing that I don't understand, and Kurt and I have talked about this, what made this what what made this charge worse was him having a gun. This is fucking Cain Velasquez. This was, I mean, this is the pride of the American Kickboxing Academy, the AKA out there in California, the MMA gym. This is a former world heavyweight champion. This is a bad, bad, bad man. Cain didn't need a gun, son. I promise you that. He'd have cut roughed him up with them big old soup bones he calls hands. He'd have head kicked the shit out of him. I'm I am very happy that after eight months of being incarcerated for attempted murder, he's released on bail. And I get it. Some people are like, dude, he broke the law. He did. Cain Velasquez 100% broke the law. But for those of you out there saying that he broke the law, and he did. Tell me what you would have done if it was your child. Tell me you would have been able to control that anger, that rage, and that heartbreak. I don't think you could. Because I know I couldn't. Now, what what happens from here, what, what happens now, I don't know. I will definitely keep you updated. Kurt and I will keep you updated. But for now, he, yes, he did break the law. He Kane did fuck up. But for now, let's celebrate the fact that he is at least out on bail. And he's he he's a he's a center of public attention. He's a, he's a celebrity. He's a famous pro athlete. I know I always say they're not they don't get the same penalties that we get. And why that's true or maybe not be true. Let's keep in mind the the main thing here is that he knows he's in the public eye, so he's not going to fuck up. He's not going to violate any conditions of his bail. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens. All right. Did you guys hear about this? Um, I guess, uh, last week, uh, three Olympic medals belonging to a member of the U S women's volleyball team were stolen from a home in Southern California. The medals were uh, being stored at a Laguna Hills home and were inside a safe that was taken in a burglary going back to October 29th, according to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. No arrests had been made. The gold medals were from the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, the silver from the 2012 London Olympics, and the bronze from the 2016 Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Now, authorities are not immediately identifying the owner of the medals, which is all you, I'm just like you, I want to know who it is. You know, it's a story. But now, what makes this interesting, and I'm laughing about this because of what I'm about to read here, 
This is the second time in 2022 that medals belonging to a member of that Olympic volleyball team has been stolen in Orange County. Jordan Poulter reported her 2020 gold medal stolen May 25th after her car was broken into at a parking garage in Anaheim, California, police said. After her car was broken into at a parking garage in Anaheim. Her car. Who the fuck leaves their Olympic gold medal laying in their car? Okay, fun fact. I always get a pro wrestling pro wrestling reference in every episode, right? And Kurt still ain't called in. I wish he was here to hear this one. Uh, Kurt Angle. You all know that name. Kurt Angle's an Olympic gold medalist, 1996 Olympics. Uh, I was a pro. I was uh, an amateur wrestler in junior high and high school. Uh, also a, a pro wrestling nerd. Love Kurt Angle, just like I love Brock Lesnar. These guys are amateur wrestlers. Brock, Brock, uh, Brock Lesnar is a two or three time NCAA heavyweight champion for the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers. Okay, how is this tying in? When Kurt Angle debuted on WWE television in 1999, 1998, whatever it was. I don't remember when he debuted. November, December of 98. I don't think it was. It wasn't 99. Was it 99? Whenever he debuted, whenever it was, I don't remember. The first few nights he was on TV or for the first few months, he was wearing so many medals around his neck. He said Vince asked him to. He was wearing, you know, collegiate medals, world championship medals, everything. Even his Olympic gold medal. He was wearing it out to the ring. And somehow a fan, I don't know if they lifted the gear, lifted it from across the barrier at the timekeeper's table where all the gear goes and everything or what. Someone stole Kurt Angle's gold medal. Of course, they got it back. Fans spoke up at the event, said, hey, it was this guy. This guy was cornered. Uh, if I was Kurt Angle, I would beat the shit out of him. But uh, he was cornered. He was questioned. He turned in his the, the medal back over. They ended up giving this guy free tickets to get Kurt Angle's medal back, which is the dumbest bargaining chip ever. But Kurt was so pissed, they went to uh, WWE's prop and artistry department, and they made a medal to look like his Olympic gold medal. And that's what he wore from there on. He never wore his actual Olympic gold to the ring. So I, I just, it, it was funny. I just, I don't know why I decided to tie that in, but I guess because this woman left her gold medal in a car, uh, it was finally returned in June after the owners of the Anaheim barbershop reported finding a medal inside a plastic bag discarded outside their business and turned it over to police. A 31 year old Anaheim resident was, uh, charged with a the theft, but as far as the one that was taken out of a safe just a couple of weeks ago, they have not um, found the party responsible for that yet. And uh, hopefully, for whoever the member is of this this uh, Olympic team, uh, hopefully she gets her medals back. So, kind of asshole, you can steal anything in the world, but what kind of dick's gonna steal your Olympic gold medal? It's like a, an achievement for your country, like. What a dick move. Got some lawsuit news here. 
about women's collegiate sports. Oh, yeah. Did you guys hear about this one? This one happened today. Listen, a federal judge today approved uh, an order that requires Brown University, which is an Ivy League school. You've all heard of Brown. To pay more than $1 million to cover attorney's fees and other expenses related to a legal case that was brought by several student athletes who challenged the Ivy League school's plan to drop several women's varsity sports. The women said the plan to reduce the varsity sports to club status in 2020 violated a consent decree that dated back to 1998 and stemmed from a landmark Title IX case. Of course, uh, Title IX is a uh, federal law requiring equal opportunity for employees. And, of course, it's also involving sports and all this other shit. Um, it challenge- it's, in the case, students were challenging the school's decision to eliminate gymnastics and volleyball. Now, Tuesday's order includes a $1.1 million uh, for the attorney fee and $40,000 for litigation expenses. This order should send a message to schools nationwide, said Arthur Bryant, who represented the women. Uh, Title IX is the law. It prohibits sex discrimination. If schools violate Title IX, they will pay. If schools violate Title IX, refuse to admit it, and fight it in the courts, they will pay more. The settlement of the 2020 dispute, Brown agreed to reinstate its women's varsity equestrian and fencing teams, a voicemail seeking comment was left with a Brown University spokesperson, but was not returned to ESPN. So, uh, I don't really have anything to say about that. I just think it's funny that you're shutting down uh, collegiate programs, uh, sports, and these girls in this ever-changing time that we're in or like uh bitch no you're not and um anyways man good for these girls good for these these young student athletes standing up for themselves uh, i can imagine it was a lot to go before somebody and ask them to represent them in a court case against a fucking ivy league college you know ivy league schools like your ivy league shit that's your harvard your your yales your Dartmouth, Columbia's, Browns, Cornell's, fucking all them places. That's like Ivy League. You just automatically think Harvard. That's like somebody going to war with Harvard. Like, you're not going to win that. And these girls are like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to war with Brown, and they got away with it. They won. They put them in their place. And how cool is that? Brown has to pay for these kids' lawyer fees and expenses. Like, I'm sorry. To me, that shit's funny, and I, I love it, and and good for women's equality. And uh, yeah, I just I, I love I love stories like these. We're gonna talk some Yasiel Puig because Yasiel Puig was uh, was a favorite, one of my favorite players at at the time when he came in. Uh, I was just talking about Yasiel Puig the other day, too. It's funny. I was uh, playing a little. Dusted out the old Xbox 360 and was playing a little MLB 2K13. I know, I need to update my games in my system. Kids have been asking about an Xbox or a PlayStation 5 for Christmas. We might, might be a gift. Might work on that. But I was just talking about Puig the other day because he, he was in the lineup. But uh, Yasiel Puig's in some deep shit. And um, 
He's agreed to plead guilty to a federal charge for lying to law enforcement officials about sports betting because he made these bets with an illegal gambling operator, according to unsealed documents by the U.S. Department of Justice. Oh, yeah, so let's let's get into this a little bit. So Puig's playing right now professionally in South Korea. He's going to plead guilty to one count of making false statements. That's going to carry a maximum sentence of at least five years in a federal prison. Now, he's agreed to pay a fine of at least $55,000. He's scheduled to make his court appearance. It, it's either, uh, it, it's I think it's either this week or next week he's scheduled to appear in court. Now, he filed a plea agreement on August 29th. Now, yes, yo, please, you remember, he rose to prominence in 2013-2014. Uh, uh, he was playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and uh, he was uh, definitely a, a a welcome acquisition for them when when he was called up. Now, Puig also played for the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians during a seven year period that stretched from 2013 to 2019. Well, he began placing bets on sporting events in May of 2019 through this third party who had worked for an illegal gambling gambling operation run by. a uh, a former minor league baseball player named Wayne Nix, who you've heard of. Now, in June of 2019, Yasiel Puig was down $282,900, so almost down $283,000 to Nix's gambling business. After paying off $200,000 of his losses and regaining access to Nix's controlled betting websites, Puig placed an additional uh, 900 bets on tennis, football, and basketball games from July 4th, 2019 to September 29th, 2019. Now, the Department of Justice release did not reference any bets that were made on baseball. Shout out Pete Rose. That's the only reason that that that's the only reason that sentence was in there. Taking a shot at the hit king. Anyways, Puig played for the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians in 2019 before becoming a free agent. He then played in the Mexican League, and last year, in 2021, he signed a one-year, $1 million contract with South Korea's Kowoom Heroes. In January, federal investigators would interview Puig in the presence of his lawyer. His plea agreement, he acknowledged lying to those federal agents who were looking into the business, denying excuse me, that he had placed bets throughout the operation. But when given the opportunity to be truthful about his involvement uh, with Nix's gambling business, Mr. Puig chose not to, said uh, an IRS uh, agent from Los Angeles, Tyler Hatcher. He said Mr. Puig's lies hindered the legal and procedural task of the investigators and the prosecutors. Now, I said earlier, you've heard of Nix and this betting thing. That's because Wayne Nix pleaded guilty in April to conspiracy to operate an illegal sports gambling business and filing a false tax return. Yeah. That, you lie about that tax return, son. Oh, yeah. Now, prosecutors said Nix's operation ran for two decades, including both current and former athletes as clients and employees. Federal prosecutors also announced Monday that a North, another former Major League Baseball player, Eric Hilgis, 49, of Los Angeles, had agreed to plead guilty to two counts of subscribing to false tax returns. 
They said he was an agent for Nix's operation. Hilgis was drafted by the Mets in 91, but made his Major League debut in 1999 with the Tigers. He played for the Oakland Athletics in 2001 and 2002. Uh, he pitched 124 innings in four years, going 8-3 and three with a 4.72 ERA. He's looking at six years in the federal pen. Puig batted 277 with 132 home runs and 415 RBIs across seven seasons. The first six spent with the Dodgers, whom he earned an all-star selection in 2014. I like Yasiel Puig. And for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, you go back to 2013-2014. Puig was in the news almost every other day. It was like uh, it was like the Dodgers hit a fucking landmine with this guy, or a gold mine, I should say. It is, it's a landmine now. But, I mean, he was all they were talking about. And rightfully so. So, <clears throat> I don't know what happens there. I don't know where we go from there. But, I struggle to do these shows without Kurt. <laughs> puss. I need you, puss. Hattie, oh girl. Um... I can't segue without Kurt. His background talk is just filler noise all the time. Uh, the World Series that just went down was the second least watched World Series in television history. Sorry, Phillies. I love you. The six games averaged 11,784,000 on Fox, down 1.3% from last year for the Braves' six-game win over the Astros, and only slightly ahead of the 9,946,000 for the Los Angeles Dodgers' six-game win over the Tampa Bay Rays, the 2020 World Series, the COVID World Series. Now, Houston's 3-1 win in Game 6 uh, this past Saturday or a little over a week ago, whatever, Saturday, it was seen by 12,549 viewers on Fox, down 11% from Atlanta's 7-0 victory over the Astros in last year's finale. Uh, game 6 was played opposite several college football games, including Alabama LSU, Clemson Notre Dame, and Florida State Miami on uh, ESPN, NBC, and ABC, respectively. Uh, the series finished with a 6.1 Nielsen rating and a 17 share. The rating was the second lowest behind the 5.2 for 2020, which had a 12 share. This year's share marked a 1% increase from last year. Including Fox Deportation and streaming, this year's series averaged 12,023,000 viewers. Viewers peaked at 51,560,000 for Game 7 of the 1975 World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the Cincinnati Reds, arguably what is referred to as by many as, if not the greatest, definitely in the top five of greatest World Series of all time. Total decline with the rise of cable television and streaming services, giving viewers more choices is what they're looking at here. The series had a 25.0 rating and a 52 share in Philadelphia and a 24.0 rating and a 55 share in Houston. What this means, for those of you that don't know, and trust me, I know a lot about this stuff because of uh, pro wrestling and the Monday Night Wars from when I was a kid. Look at me. I got two of them in one episode. Basically being that the rating is the percentage of television households tuned into a broadcast, 
What that means is then that the share is a percentage viewing of the telecast among those households with TVs on at the time. Basically, I don't know what the deal is. Not a lot of people gave a fuck about this World Series. I don't know if people are burned out on baseball, if it's the teams or what. Houston's, you know, they're, how many World Series straight appearances have they had now? Um, or how many postseasons, you know, whatever. Philly, nobody saw them coming. I shit on my, I shit on my Phillies all season long. Never thought they'd make the World Series. So I don't really know what the deal is there. The ratings are down. But, you know, Kurt and I have talked about this. The ratings for baseball are, are generally tanking a little bit. Uh, you look at the big four, which is the NHL, MLB, NBA, and NFL, and you know usually it's the NHL and the and Major League Baseball that swap positions back and forth for third place. But some can make the argument here lately that Major League Baseball has been the fourth place finisher every time. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't understand that. I've Kurt and I've talked about this off air public plenty of times. I mean, we cover all kinds of sports on this podcast, but World Series recaps are our bread and butter, and we've done so many of them. And we just, you know, Kurt and I talk a lot of baseball, not just all sports. We talk a lot of baseball off the air and text messages, and when we're in between recordings at his house or before we start recording or after, and we've talked about like why is baseball's ratings so bad. And I get it. Some people can't sit there and watch it. Some people, it's hard to sit there and watch a baseball game. I personally enjoy it when I'm able to do it. But I don't get to sit down and watch games all the time anymore, you know. But I just figured I would uh, hit you guys with a little bit of information about the World Series ratings. Well, since Kurt's not here, I'm going to talk uh, I'm gonna talk soccer just to stick it in his ass. No, just kidding. But there is something soccer related I want to talk about. Of course, we know the uh, the World Cup's going on in Qatar now. Uh, FIFA president Gianni Infantino came out and publicly issued a plea for a ceasefire that the war between Ukraine and Russia that has been going on for however many months now, calling for all sides to use the tournament as a quote positive trigger to work toward a resolution. Uh, speaking during a lunch with leaders of uh, the Group of 20, the G20 Summit, major economies on the Indonesian islands of Bali, Infantino said the month-long World Cup, which starts on Sunday, offers a unique platform for peace. He said, quote, My plea to all of you to think on a temporary ceasefire for one month in the duration of the World Cup, or at least the implementation of some humanitarian corridors or anything that could lead to the resumption of a dialogue as a first step to peace. You're the world leaders. You have the ability to influence the course of history. Football and the world cup are offering you and the world, a unique platform of unity and peace all over the world. The cup takes place on Sunday, as I mentioned through December 18th in Qatar, which is the first middle Eastern country to host the tournament. Russia reached the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 2018, but has been barred from this tournament because of the invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine came close to qualifying for Qatar, but lost out to Wales in a deciding playoff in June. Infantino said that as many as 5.5 billion people 
are expected to watch this year's tournament, adding that it could give a message of hope towards reaching peace. Maybe the current World Cup, says Quintino, starting in five days, can be a positive trigger. Okay. Point this out. I've mentioned repeatedly, I joke that nobody likes soccer. And that's not true. A lot of people like soccer. I don't. But, I mean, that doesn't mean I'm the only one. But I'll tell you right now, uh, Russia and Ukraine could give a fuck less, like zero fuck less about world peace and unity. And this World Cup is not going to draw about a ceasefire. That that shit's not happening. Uh, This is going to continue to rage on. And, uh, I mean, I've just grown numb to it. Like, I don't even care. I don't even fucking listen to it. I see shit about headlines. I don't click it. I couldn't tell you the first thing that's been happening for the last month, other than I'm sure more people are dying. I don't care. I don't talk about it. So I'm just putting this in here because here, here you do have a platform on a global scale that billions and billions of people are going to be watching and use that platform to call for the other leaders to just take a ceasefire for a month to let this big global event for sports go on and, the leaders of these two countries could f- don't even care like at all whatsoever. It's, it's cute. I get it. It's, it's, uh, you know, it would be nice and whatever, but they don't care. So that's not happening. I know you guys are probably sick about me talking about this and hearing about it, but for the third time in the span of, uh, for the third time in the span of about nine or ten days, uh, we're going to talk about Mitchell Miller, Isaiah Myers Carruthers, and the Boston Bruins situation. Because as I've mentioned in two episodes now, the last episode Kurt and I did and the special hockey edition episode I did with my friend Tyson. Shout out Tyson, I know you're listening. Uh, we've got to talk about this situation because this is going to be one of the biggest stories in sports in 2022. And it all started coming out here at the beginning of November, and it's it's going to dominate, I'm sure, till the end of the year. So this situation, and I don't want to get too much into this, guys. You you've heard the episode with Kurt. If you haven't, go back to the episode with Kurt, the weeknight or not the weeknight, the uh, current events number four. Go back to the episode with Tyson from uh, Sunday afternoon that was released um, about this. Uh, I'll get into it a little bit, but I'm not going to paint. I'm, I'm just going to kind of paint you the picture. You guys have most of the details in the last two episodes. Uh, so there's three episodes back to back with talking about this. Uh, anyways, the Bruins have now retained uh, Loretta Lynch, who is a former United States attorney general. They are, they are retaining her because they are going to have her conduct an independent review of their player vetting process after they signed Mitchell Miller and then cut ties with him like 72 hours later amid all this backlash that's coming out. Uh, the Bruins announced today that the the law firm of Paul Weiss, Rikifin, Wharton, and Garrison will conduct an independent review of our player vetting process to ensure our process going forward reflects our core values. Bruins said that they will fully cooperate with the review and will publicly disclose the results of the investigation. Now, um, the Boston Bruins strive every day to live our lives and meet 
the high standards our associates, fans, and community have come to expect, said the statement released today. This includes treating everyone inside and outside our organization with dignity and respect. We recently fell short of our high standards and disappointed ourselves and many in our community. Tyson, I'm expecting a text message from this. The Bruins, of course, here's here I'll paint a little bit of the picture for you again. Now, they signed a 20-year-old defenseman named Mitchell Miller to an entry-level contract on November 4th with the, ascent, the attention of sending him to their minor league affiliate in the AHL, which is Providence. The team, uh, however, announced uh, three days later that it was cutting ties with Miller after intense backlash from the fans, players, Bruins players themselves, and Commissioner Gary Bettman. So, right now as it stands, they cut ties with him and released him, but Miller is still under a contract, and he's still technically a member of, a member of the Providence organization in the AHF. Man, I cannot... <laughs> Uh, I talk super fast when I'm by myself. I get nervous. Now, okay. Let me uh, take a deep breath here. Let me uh, hit the old vape. It's just, uh, you just bear with me. Bear with me. Kurt, fill time. Okay. So, uh, the Bruins can pay him to stay home for this season and then buy him out at the end of the year for a third of what his salary is. Or they can work with him and the Players Association on a settlement that would allow him to become a free agent. Now, as Tyson pointed out the other night, this isn't a, a highly touted prospect that was a first-round pick. This guy was a fourth-round pick from the Coyotes in 2020. But they relinquished his draft rights when the story came public of what he, how he bullied and ridiculed a developmentally disabled black classmate uh, as a juvenile. And he was convicted in juvenile court of 2016 of this offense. Of course, the report goes that uh, he was abusing your son, racial slurs. They made him lick uh, Myers Carruthers' mother, I should say, uh, alleged that Miller began abusing her son in the second grade, and it continued through junior high. And in, uh, this was in Ohio. Uh, they made him lick a candy cop, a candy push pop that had been uh, wiped down in a bathroom urinal. They made him lick uh, their lunch tables. They made him reference that he was their N-word if, before they would talk to him or said him, you know, like, hey, I am Mitchell Miller's N-word. Like, so, uh you know, of course, this this blew up all across the the NHL and all of sports as well. Uh, and then uh, Gary Bettman got in front of it. Gary Bettman was out of the country at the time. Uh, he was being he was staying in contact with the uh, and I can never remember his name. Tyson does. He was in contact with the uh, associate commissioner, the assistant commissioner, the deputy commissioner, whatever the fuck you want to say. They were talking about this while Bettman was out of the country. But Batman would make several statements while out of the country, basically saying, I can't tell you this guy's ever going to play. They've not went through the proper, like Batman was, you know, full on trying to get in front of it unsuccessfully, but trying to, uh, now, um, uh, last week, uh, a week ago tomorrow or, uh, no, a week ago yesterday, I should say on Monday, 
Cam Neely, one of my all-time favorite players, who is basically running the show in Boston, uh, got out in front of this saying that um, their vetting process was obviously flawed. Uh, he cited new information that you know that that made the team walk away from Miller. And he said uh, the fact that the Bruins organization never reached out to Isaiah Meyer Carruthers' family was concerning. Da 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 da. This story is far from finished. There, there's going to be there's going to be a lot more to uh, talk about on this. Uh, I personally don't see Mitchell Miller ever uh, setting foot on the ice in the National Hockey League. He might go play in in other leagues. He might go play uh, other countries uh if they take him but as far as uh stepping on the ice for the boston bruins or any team in the national hockey league the show of shows as far as professional ice hockey goes he'll never see the ice never uh even if there was a chance that he was going to see the ice when boston signed him the fact that he didn't get out of front of this and do damage control himself uh speaks volumes now of course there is the infamous letter you know, prior to the draft in 2020, he sent a letter to all 31 teams because Seattle didn't come in until last year. He sent a letter to all 31 teams saying, listen, um, I did some fucked up things when I was a kid, and uh, you're probably going to hear about it. I was convicted in juvenile court. Uh, oh, I what did I do? I bullied a mentally handicapped uh, black child. And uh, racially insulted him. I made him lick a candy that had been pissed on and drugged through a piss-filled urinal. Uh, we did all kinds of sort of things on him. Basically, we just treated him like, uh, like you know, they did back in the '60s and the '50s. You know, just just fun old gang stuff. You know, basically is what is what his actions were. And uh, he tried to get in front of it, and it still didn't work, which is funny. Like Mitchell Miller, you are a piece of shit. Anyways. This story's far from over. Uh, I'm going to be all over this like white on rice. Is that, is that a phrase people still use today, white on rice? Anyways, uh, I will update you any chance I get uh, about this story. So, uh, Mitchell Miller, I hope to never see you skating on the ice. All right, one of the last pieces of news tonight. This might be the last one, or uh, I got a couple others, but I'm running out of steam without Kurt here. So it's amazing to me, too, about that, how much Kurt always jokes that he doesn't add anything to the show, but he totally does. Uh, some nights I can sit here and I can do these mini shots on my phone with just my earbuds, and I can roll fine. And then other nights I've got all the equipment set up ready to record with Kurt. And uh, I just struggle to get through him. So, uh, anyways, it just, he, he helps. Kurt always jokes that, you know, he, he just, Kurt, Kurt will read an article. And I'm not lying about that. Kurt, uh, if I send him an article to read about something that's important, he'll read it. Uh, if I tell him to go to YouTube and look at this, he'll do it. But he says he don't do much because I put all the notes together. I do all the research for the show, and that might be true. But just having somebody across the table or when we do remote recordings like tonight, having somebody on the other end of the phone, somebody to keep talking back with you at, it it helps tremendously. Um, but we got a little, got to talk a little live golf, a little bit of that Saudi Arabian blood money because uh, I love talking. This is another story that I've, 
we've been talking about off and on all year and one of the biggest stories in the sports is the live golf and pga tour the culmination of their quote whose dick is bigger contest uh roy mcelroy made some comments today uh roy's number one in the world right now so people are listening to what he says i've always been a roy guy what a class of golfers we've had in about the last decade too you know dustin johnson roy mcelroy bubba watson uh bubba bubba watson ricky fowler uh jordan spieth jason day god i loved me some jason day uh and the list goes on i'm i'm forgetting so many the list goes on but what what a time period for professional golf that we've had in the last decade with all these guys but rory said that uh some things have to happen before the pga tour and live golf can work together and namely rory took a pot shot at greg norman who's greg norman Greg Norman is the CEO of Live Golf and the commissioner. And Roy spoke to reporters uh, at this week's World Tour Championship in Dubai and said the sides can't come to get a compromise until Norman, who is a two-time Open winner, he's won two majors, uh, is no longer the public face of Live Golf, which is, of course, funded by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. That's Saudi blood money. That has been a phrase that we have used I ought to put that on a fucking t-shirt as much as we've used that this year. But Roy said, quote, there's a few things I would like to see on the live side that needs to happen. I think Greg needs to go. I think he just needs to exit stage left. He's made his mark, but I think now is the right time to sort of say, look, you've got this thing off the ground, but no one's going to talk unless there's an adult in the room that can actually try to mend fences. Now, this is coming because... Uh, as as I've mentioned, and uh, check out our archives, uh, Steel Toes and Scoreboards Archives, uh, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have made mention of the fact that Rory has a uh, Rory has really been outspoken about this feud between Live Golf and the PGA Tour, and Rory has always kind of just played it down. Trying, he's doing the Peyton Manning thing. I I I don't know who did it before Peyton, but I just can remember Peyton my whole career. Peyton would give the Peyton Manning answer. What I mean by that, and how's this referencing Rory? Rory's giving the Peyton Manning answer. Well, Peyton, you know, what do you think about these guys? You know, they were saying some pretty heated things about your mom and it. Well, you know, in the spirit of competitive football, you know, you know, sometimes tempers flare. And I get it. You know, some guys lose their temper. And I'm not mad that he said those things about my mama. But I tell you what, you know, it's just, you know, one of those things. You're just going to have to get out there and field on Sunday and just play the game. You know, like just the most basic bullshit, completely bypassing the question. That's kind of what Rory was doing in a way throughout all this. He wouldn't really throw shots. He would just give these Peyton Manning-esque professional answers and not really get into it. Well, now it's uh, completely, whoa. And this is coming because last week, a guy whose name I cannot fucking pronounce, and I'm just going to try to, Majid Al-Saror, who is the CEO of the Saudi Golf Federation and the leader of Saudi Golf, denied a published report in the London Telegraph that Greg Norman was being forced out. The Telegraph had reported that Live Golf was pursuing Taco Bell CEO Mark King to replace Greg Norman. Now, Greg King, or uh, Mark King, excuse me, has previously been the CEO of TaylorMade. So for all of you out there in the golf, it's like, why does that name sound familiar? It's because he worked for TaylorMade, and he was also the president of Adidas in North America. Now, the Telegraph reported that King attended several Live Golf events in its inaugural season 
and met with uh, Yasir al-Ramayin, the governor of the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Now, Soror said, Greg Norman is our CEO and commissioner. Any suggestion that changes are being made to Greg's title or role is false. Now, in February of this year, Sports Resolutions UK panel will decide whether the DP World Tour can punish its members who competed in live golf events because, of course, the the DP World Tour is going on in Dubai, uh, including Ian Poulter, Leigh Westwood, Graham McDowell, and others. Now, Live Golf and a handful of its players had filed this big federal antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour in which Live Golf claims the PGA Tour illegally suspended players for competing in Live Golf events and is wielding its monopoly power to squash the competition. We talked about that. Check it out in the archives. Now, the PGA Tour would then file a counter lawsuit claiming Live Golf has interfered with existing contracts it had with its members. O'Rory continued on saying, it's obviously been a very contentious year in golf, and I've said this. The best, thing to ha- the best thing in golf is to have all the best players playing together, and what's happening right now is not that. So I fear the game when that's going on. It's very contentious because there's lawsuits going on and people suing people. It's very, very messy. So again, if all that stuff can be sorted out, one way or another, then you have to get to the stage where there's forgiveness and people can have dialogue and some sort of common ground or compromise. But while all this is happening, that's very hard to do. Now, I've made no bones about how I feel about live golf. It's there that Saudi Arabian blood money, Americans, a lot of Americans hate it. And I might be in the minority here, but I, I do kind of like some of the things they're doing. They're challenging the PGA. The PGA has had a monopoly on golf for years. And they're starting to get some competition from this outsider who's obviously paying a lot more money because there's more money to be paid out. And PGA is losing some membership. It's losing some viewership. It's losing some ratings. I'm sure it's losing some merchandise sales. I can see how you can be a little pissy. But competition's never a bad thing. Competition just means you have to get better at what you do. Get creative with what you do. Personally, I think golf needs a bad boy. And right now, in a way, that bad boy golf has been Greg Norman and what he's doing for live golf and the things he's coming out and saying. And hats off to him. More power to him. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of competition. And hey, competition sometimes causes controversy. Controversy creates cash. At the end of the day, Everybody's pocketbook's a little thicker. But regardless, (laughs) uh, Rory taking a pot shot at Greg Norman today uh, just was, I was just like, wow, that just fucking happened. Like, I couldn't believe it. I I couldn't wait to talk about it. And uh, I always tend to put live golf towards the end of the show because I always kind of feature it as a heavy hitter. And uh, so, yeah. And uh, I guess that about wraps it up for tonight's uh, Weeknight Chronicles episode. What's coming next for Steel Toes and Scoreboards we're, as we're pushing here the last six weeks of the year or so. Uh, Kurt and I are going to roll out. The next time Kurt and I get together in person for a full-length episode, we're going to roll out part three of this government overreach that we started back in February and March, which was Ruby Ridge 91, Waco 93, Ruby Ridge 92, Waco 93, 
Uh, and we're going to roll out the part three, which is the Oklahoma City bombing, nineteen ninety five. That will be our next feature length episode, whenever we can get together. And I would like to try to knock out at least one more uh, World Series for this year, at least one more. And we'll probably do we'll do an anniversary series, so it'll be uh, in five and ten year intervals, obviously. So it'll be any World Series that ended in the year seven or the year two. Uh, and then after that, I don't know. I've got a lot of plans for uh, 2023 for the podcast wise. Going to make some changes to the show. I've been sitting down thinking about what can we do to increase viewership or viewership listenership and downloads. Uh, this month we're struggling. We're only at about 50 something downloads for the month. So you guys get out there and share the podcast for us. Last month we th- we hit 328 downloads for the month of October. That's the best month ever. That's just leaps and bounds above anything we've ever done. And uh, I I will be happy with uh, a minimum of 100 downloads a month. Now we've started to really gain traction thanks to After Two Beers podcast. A uh, shout out Dutch and Gibbler and uh, JP and uh, Kevin and aj and all them guys uh what they've done for us we will be uh we will be getting back to record with those guys uh sometime coming up uh the first of the year i'm I'm thinking with holidays coming up it'll just be a mess they they said they'd like to get with do an episode with us three or four times a year and uh kurt and i enjoyed our trip up to richmond so we're definitely going back and uh, i'm going to try to set something up for uh, january february good old cold winter driving months for a three four hour trip to richmond But uh, all right, guys, so I think that's going to take care of it. So for uh, the absent Kirk Kelly, I'm Jared Atkins. This was another episode of uh, Steel Toes and Scoreboards, a Weeknight Chronicles episode. Uh, Thank you guys for your uh, support and uh, sharing the podcast. And we will see you guys next time.